Hey, how are you doing? And welcome to this episode of the Christina Talks podcast. So I am recording this episode as lots and lots of things have been breaking in the news relating to sort of stocks and shares and Robinhood and Reddits and all sorts of things. And normally I wouldn't go down a kind of news jacking topical kind of route, but I know a certain somebody who is very knowledgeable when it comes to stocks and shares, who is actually who someone ha- who has given me quite a lot of education in terms of the trading world as well. And we have lots and lots of conversations relating to how people come into this world and get involved and lose money and make money. So I thought it was an opportune moment to bring Ian Cairns from Market Fluent onto the show. So um, I'm going to dive into this episode and hopefully there are going to be a few nuggets of wisdom for you to take forward. Hi, Ian, how are you doing? Yeah, I'm good, thank you. How are you? I'm all right. All right. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. So um, do you want to do a quick intro so people know who the hell you are? Uh, yeah, I guess so. So um, I'm always rubbish at doing these. So effectively, Ian Cairns, I have a um, uh, a company called Market Fluent, which is a software company. Um, and it's kind of, it was built out of a pet project of mine where it, I designed software using the rules laid out by Benjamin Graham in his book, The Intelligent Investor from back in the 40s of how to find undervalued companies in the stock market. And so in essence, it it kind of helps make decisions on fundamental analysis and what's now been famed as value investing because of people like Warren Buffett um, follows these principles. And it is a case of... Uh, yeah, let the software do the legwork, narrow the field, and then go and dig into something that you know. Perfect. So we met about 10 months ago, which is crazy to think it's actually almost a year ago now, but we met 10 months ago, and at that point I knew nothing about investing, stocks, shares, et cetera, et cetera. And over that time you've kind of given me a bit of a – a crash course, if you like, and I've taken on learnings in little mini micro chunks, and you've been very, very patient with me. But the reason I wanted to get you on the podcast and talk about this is that over the last last few weeks, it's kind of hit mainstream media, lots of stuff around um, stocks and shares and shorting and Reddit and Robinhood. And I think right now there's a lot of people that are kind of thinking they can get involved with the markets and make money really quickly. And I know this is something that makes your blood boil. I don't, it doesn't make my blood boil. I think that's probably uh, doing me a disservice. But what I do, what it amazes me is, is that we it kind of, um, it's what, seven years now, seven years I've actively been either participating or paying attention to the stock market and it, and it is cyclical um, and everyone says it's cyclical and I wholeheartedly agree it's cyclical and every now and again you get something that happens where people think it's just an opportunity to make easy money and what's going on with Reddit and GameStop 
Um, this has been like 18 months in the making. This isn't, this hasn't happened overnight. This didn't start in January. Okay, now, you know, some of these gains have been realised in January, but, you know, there's, there's people in, in the Wall Street Bets community on Reddit that have been, they've been, in, <clears throat> excuse me, they've been in at this since, you know, summer of 19, some of them. And they've held their position and stood their ground. And ultimately, you know, what they discover with GameStop is that having done their research, having carried out the due diligence, they discovered that it was oversold. And at, at one point, 145% of the shares have been sold. Well, how do you sell more shares than what exists? Let's wind it back to the beginning, right? Okay. Right, remember, you're you're kind of, you know this stuff inside out and you're like operated at this like, you know, to this kind of level where like in my world, it took me three months to work out that a position was the fact that you bought some shares and you got some some skin in the game. So like actually, if we break it back, what actually has happened? Because I think a lot of people are missing this thing. Okay, so in very simple terms, what has happened is... Um, Hedge funds predominantly, but I dare say there will be some trading arm of large banks involved in this because people, when they take short positions, are not very open about it. Um, and effectively, what these people have done is they have bought and sold. They have, correction, they haven't bought, they've borrowed shares in a company. And then they have sold the shares and taken the money and held on to the money. And they have an agreement with whoever's lent them the shares by a certain date, they will return the shares to them. And so basically what these people are kind of, the easiest way to do it is, is I take your phone um, and I say to you, give me your phone. And in 12 months time, within the next 12 months, I'm going to give you your phone back. And what I effectively go and do is I could take your phone, go to eBay or something. I sell your phone today. Um, I'll probably pay you some kind of retainer to keep you happy that you don't have a phone. And then when the phone drops in value and I can buy it cheap off eBay, I buy you the phone, give you it back. We're square. Okay. And so what they've done is with these shares is they've, they've borrowed and sold more shares than what actually existed. And I think when people are kind of crying murder on this and they're saying that, um, you know, there needs to be, the regulators need to do stuff. And in the US, Congress has got involved and the Senate's got involved and the politicians are having their own little arguments on Twitter, which in some respects is quite amusing. Um, but but what, what I think probably needs to come out of this is that how do we get in a position where more shares are sold in that company than ever existed? And this isn't an isolated case. If you go back, I want to say it's about 2009, 2010, um, uh, a real estate company in Las Vegas, Global Links, rings a bell? Google Global Links. And basically what, what happened was this, this real estate company was massively oversold to the point where someone did reverse split their shares. So basically they've said 10 shares is worth one. 
that's that's what they've done. That's what a reverse split is. And they reverse split the shares. And because the, the amount of shares were so far oversold, someone effectively bought the whole company but didn't own anything because there were so many of these false shares floating around because it had been so badly oversold. And this problem never seems to have been fixed. And I think, you know, GameStop was the one. GameStop was the one where, you know, the, the people on Reddit that the media are bashing, you know what? There's some very, very intelligent people on there and there's some people who are doing some incredible research and they're probably doing research at a level, if not some of them better than some of the analysts in the big financial institutions. You know, the internet has become, has leveled the playing field on how we can research businesses and how we can look into how they're performing. And because of that, some of these guys and girls on on Reddit have, have been able to to really do some superb stuff. And I think what's just happened is, is that it started off with a small group of people who have carried out the due diligence and worked out that if they just sit patiently, because I don't know who the phrase is by, the quote, I want to say it's Warren Buffett, but I may be wrong. You know, the stock market will take money from the active and give it to the inactive. And all these guys have done has been that. They've been inactive. They've just bought shares done nothing, being quiet. And what's happened is these people who've borrowed shares have to go and buy them back. Well, guess what? Now you need to buy them back. These guys own the shares. They're going to decide at what price they sell them back to you for. And funnily enough, when there's a shortage in supply, or correction, when there's a rise in demand and a shortage in supply, the price goes up. It's a very, very simple concept, which because of some of the terminology and phrases used is made to sound complicated. But in essence, somebody sold something they didn't own and then they have to buy it back to make it good. And someone else has realized they've sold something they didn't own and they've gone and bought it. So when they do come to buy it back, it's going to cost them an absolute fortune. And, you know, fair play. The hedge hedge funds have been caught out. They've got the pants pulled down and they got spanked. I don't think mainstream media should be complaining about this. Yes, I think towards the tail end of this now, you've seen people jumping on board who are maybe trying, I think it's a way of making a quick profit. Um, and they don't fully understand the game that they're playing, but I don't I don't think you change that. I There's always going to be people who jump into the stock market and lose money because they don't... They, you don't fully understand what they're doing. But I think on things like this, when it's like hitting the, you know, hitting the news in this way, I think that there is, as individuals, we need to be responsible for educating ourselves before we get into this. But I think there are so many people out there that are, it's almost like it's too accessible and then and there's people out there that are kind of selling it as a as an easy, quick, do this course and in seven days you'll be you'll you'll have earned X amount. Well, I, I think these are two different things. And I think so my interpretation largely on what's happened with this whole Robin Hood thing is there's a big outcry because mil- millionaires and billionaires are losing cash. You know, the friend of the uh, the friends of the network owner. You know, 
are getting their pants pulled down and spanked in the middle of Times Square because one of the Wall Street bet guys did pay for a billboard to go up in Times Square on the digital screens. Do you know what I mean? This is this is how ridiculous this has got. Is it's made? I think I think I read somewhere it made a thousand millionaires in twenty days. You know, but but these aren't overnight millionaires. These are people who got into this six, ten, twelve, eighteen months ago. They've been in this for a while, and I think I don't think it's too accessible. But I think there is a problem with people selling this dream of. Um, buy, 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 sell, sell, sell kind of malarkey and you're going to be driving a Lamborghini at the end of the week. I think that's a completely different discussion though. I think um, I think the the trappings, the financial, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? It, it's kind of the way that, okay, look at movies like The Wolf of Wall Street. Does that make sense? And what And what that kind of portrays and sells to people. I think that um, that's as much of a reason why, because people buy a dream. Um, and Jordan Buford, Buford, I don't know how to pronounce his surname right. The guy who's about the Wolf, Wolf of Wall Street is about. You know, he's he's been quite vocal in the past week or so in the media, saying that you know people need to stop jumping in on this rally. It's getting stupid, and they need to you know protect themselves and that kind of thing. And and this is the thing is as long as you don't look at it as a way of making quick money, as long as you are sensible about it, you know, ultimately the stock market don't, as we've discussed many a times, don't put more money in than you can afford to lose. Mm-hmm. And as, as I kind of phrase it as if, you know, especially the last year or so lockdowns, that kind of thing, if you'd normally go out and spend 50 quid on a Friday night, you know, in the pub and you're not doing that anymore and you've got that cash there. Okay. Maybe go and, Go and have a look for some businesses that you like, you know, but but look for things that you like for 10 years, not something that you like this week because it's in the news. And I think that's the subtle difference is that I think there's there's a lot of there's a lot of factors in this where we need to actually be um I think people need to be measured in their approach. Um and things like I don't think it's as bad in the UK, but maybe it is. It's just maybe not being reported the same. But certainly in the US, you've got people who are borrowing money to buy shares, which... That's the scary thing. That really is like people, you know, money on credit cards to buy shares because this thing's blown up in the news and it's... That's the scary thing. But it's blown up in the news because of social media, because of, you know... Um, I think at the start of last week, there was just over 2 million people were members of Wall Street Bets. It's over 8 million now. Yeah, so Wall Street Bets is the group on Reddit. It's the Reddit group, yeah. There's, to be fair now, there's become so many spin-offs of it. Um, yeah, the Wall Street Bet, insert whatever you want. Um, there's so many spin-offs of it. And I think on there, you know, they had a little... Some individuals, and this is where I think, you know, people need to be careful and sensible. So some individuals on there said that um, there's a short squeeze on silver. And so um, last weekend, silver jumped from about $19 an ounce to $22 an ounce. Rough, big handful figures. I don't remember the exact numbers. Um, 
And that's because this had built a bit of momentum for a couple of hours and people started just piling cash in the silver. Um, but the problem with that is where his stock has, he has, within reason, has a, a defined number of shares. And the biggest company in the world, what, Apple, probably about $2 trillion, give or take at the moment, I think, depending where the market is. Where the, the silver market is trillions deep, there's trillions of dollars deep. There's no, you know, there's economies that couldn't even afford to actually buy up enough silver to make a meaningful long-term difference if there was actually a short squeeze on silver. Um, and this is the thing. So someone says, oh, there's a short squeeze on game stock. And so what a short squeeze is, I can see by the look on your face that you're probably <laughs> thinking, what the hell's he on about? So what a short squeeze is, is you know someone has sold something they don't own and now you're going to squeeze them out of that position. So you're going to make them sell it for a loss. So GameStop is like the ultimate short squeeze because depending at what price, for example, um, Melvin Capital, who was the hedge fund that had to go and get bailed out twice in a week and, you know, was definitely, definitely on a creek of the brown sticky stuff. They, um, they, they might have bought their positions at like, I don't know, $30 a share. And that's when they open their short. So all of a sudden it's now, you know, it's a thousand percent more. And it's, you know, and the chances are they probably didn't have the money on hand to cover all the shares that they were short anyway, because they'd have used leverage, borrowing money, you know. And so it's all these instruments that, you know, that things like options, options got used against them. Options are a derivative. I've had discussions with people in the financial industry and they, I don't even think they fully understand what a derivative is. And so, but they trade these derivatives because, you know, and I know Al Murray makes a really good parody of this, but I actually think he's onto something. You know, they don't know what a derivative is. They just, you know, well, it's derivatives, aren't they? Got to have some of derivatives. Everyone's got some derivatives. Um, but, um, but joking aside, I think it's that, it's because certainly in the US, how people can have access to instruments that maybe you don't have access as easily to in Europe because of laws are different. Um, and because the culture is slightly different, you know, if you go back not that long ago, or okay, I suppose to say not that long ago, it's getting on for a hundred years now, but the late 1920s, the early 1930s, the bulk of um, stocks and shares in the US were owned by private individuals not by funds and institutes. And that's a change that we've seen over time with pensions and all this kind of stuff. And also it's a way of, people have seen it, it's a way of getting rich. And the, the way it's a, it's a way of getting rich, it's all about the fees. It's not so much getting rich off the actual stocks and shares. It's the person taking the fees off somebody for looking after their money or taking a percentage of the money they earn them that's that's where the that's where the big money is that's why you see you know your wall street guys with their five houses and helicopters and all this carry on is because actually it's not don't get me wrong some of these people are incredible stock pickers but they're incredible stock pickers with someone else's money and with leverage against their firm not themselves 
Yeah. And when you look at a lot of fund managers who who are tremendous fund managers and go off on their own, a very small percentage of them fund managers can make the same kind of return out on their own. And there's a couple of reasons for it. One of them is they take risks they probably shouldn't be taking, but they have no one to tell them to stop. The other thing as well is, is that their name is good, but without someone actually backing them, they maybe can't get access to the same leverage that they could have done when they were working for a bigger fund. You know, they can't, they don't have as much capital to throw at something, throw at an idea. Um, yeah, there's all kinds of reasons, but a lot of them don't do as well when they do go out on their own. And this is where I think people get confused. As retail investors, it's about the long, the long play. Treat it as you're buying an ownership in a business. So when you talk about retail investors, you're talking about people like me sat on their sofa looking at their phone. Maybe they've downloaded an app or whatever and started playing around with 50 quid here, 100 quid there kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Effectively, that a retail investor is is someone who is um, doing it on their own through... There's loads of platforms out there um, that you know, will allow you to do it. And the one, the, the only thing, not as advice, but the only thing I would say to people is do your research on is the fees. Um, because the fees will kill you in the long term. You know, the, the fees will be, you know, it's, it's bad enough you make a bad investment and you lose some money, but it's even, it's even more painful when someone's then charged you a fee for losing your money. Um, yeah. And I think I think it needs to be, you know, you need to be mindful of that. And I think the other thing as well is I picked I picked a story up earlier today. I haven't really had a chance to dig into it properly. Um but tax. And so this is something in the UK that there's certain accounts you can open where you you don't pay any tax. And then there's accounts you open where you are liable for tax. And tax isn't done, maybe done by some brokers. I'm not, you know, I'm not a, an accountant or anything on this. But most brokers, to my knowledge, will just pass the information to HMRC and you're responsible for your own tax. And I think there'll be a few people who will have been caught out by this because they won't, they won't be aware they have to declare. Right, okay they're they're you know what they're doing but again you know there's stuff out there like ices and things and this is one of them ones just i'm sure if you googled now financial advisor and insert whatever town you're in i'm pretty sure you you find one and just give them a call and just ask just explain your situation explain what you're doing and i'm sure they'll be able to you know point you in the right direction to say well this is what you need to do the tax threshold i want to say is about 12 and a half grand but again check don't don't take my word for it. Um, but you know, they'll be able to advise you on what you need to do. And most of the most of the brokers, um, if you're not in a, a tax-free um account, for example, if you're not in an ISA account, most of them will quite happily, as long as you stay with them, will quite happily transfer your shares over for you. Um but that's notwithstanding, if you've made a load of money, you're probably still going to be liable for tax. And I think that one will play out on people. It's kind of that. Um, it's not the broker's responsibility to make people aware of the tax implications. 
but I'm sure there'll be some people crying foul that, oh, no one told me about the tax in eight months' time when HMRC chase them up for a bill. Yeah. Um, and that again, it's that it's that carrying out your own due diligence. I took this as second nature because I spent time before committing money, I spent time actually trying to work out what the hell's going on. I think this is the thing. It's like there's so many things that can impact share prices. So there's, you know, it's like, I don't know, if, if we take Elon Musk as an example. Uh, no, take Facebook yeah. as an example. Okay. okay. So there are times where they have announced a change in their algorithms, okay, and mm. their share price just immediately drops. And it's like, what you know, one announcement, one piece of press – and it it just absolutely destroys destroys the share price for i don't know a week let's say sometimes it's only like 24 48 hours i think there's been times and you you would probably correct me for being wrong on this but i think there's times where Elon Musk has been known for like he'll tweet something stupid and it has an immediate impact on share price that kind of stuff so he did it with GameStop yeah he yeah, did it with GameStop yeah he did yeah, he did it with GameStop and, you know, it was a catalyst. The Elon Musk effect. He's done it with his own company where he threatened to take it private, didn't he? But Elon Musk has got bad blood and history with them, um, with, you know, hedge funds and short sellers because they've tried to squeeze his own company. But this is this is why your kind of, your way of thinking in terms of whatever you buy so again, like because I'm thinking about conversations we, we've had outside of this this podcast, but your big thing is whatever you buy, be you're buying it because you're holding it holding on to it for 10 years. You're investing, you're not trading, yeah. you're investing. Yeah. I think that's the thing. It's like if you're gonna get into it, there are gonna be those days where you're like, oh my God, I wanna sell, I wanna sell, because you see that like plus 96% in terms of the share value. And then there are days where you're crying into your cornflakes because it's minus that percentage instead. But it, one thing I've learned from you is that definitely it all comes down to that, all comes down to the research, which I probably still don't do in enough detail. So everyone knows Ian's starting to laugh at me now for that. There's this like little knowing grin on his face. But it, I guess the, so where do people start with this? If they're th- if they're thinking okay right you know hear what you're saying Christina hear what you're saying Ian but bollocks I want to have a go anyway where do they begin? So where I began was um, started looking there's a there's a book by a British guy <clears throat> um, Robbie Burns um, the Naked Trader. Um, I didn't start with Robbie's book, but I certainly came across it later. And um, even though he, he doesn't invest, he's trading. But actually, Robbie's book's really good because he talks about, you know, being patient and, you know, how what to look for, when to look for things, that kind of stuff. You know, the fact companies release news at 7 a.m. in the morning, which is the UK stock market opens at 8.30. So you've got like a 90-minute window there to kind of plan your strategy. And you can, you know, bad news, go and buy the dip, as they say. Um, 
Oh, the other one is, you know, if you're going, oh, I don't, I don't want to do any of this reading malarkey. Well, you know what? This isn't advice. But go and take a couple hundred quid, have a punt at it, and see how much it smarts losing a couple of hundred quid, because you suddenly realise you're not as in tune to this as what you think you are. And then I'm pretty sure you'll take your couple, you'll come back from your couple hundred quid and go, oh, I've made a mess of that. Um, other things to read, uh, Dondo Investor Manesh Pabrai. Um, that's a really good read. Uh, I'd recommend that for anybody. Um, I think kind of YouTube, and if you just put value investing into YouTube, loads of stuff's got the second biggest search engine in the world, YouTube, just stick it in there, see what comes up. And ultimately, because this whole value investing premise that I kind of walk comes from um, Ben Graham, um, you know, because it, it, it feeds back to a single point 70-odd years ago, 80 years ago, it's kind of, <clears throat> it's not very difficult to make sure you've got the right, you're following the right path because loads of people are following the same path. Um, I'm not on my own by any stretch of imagination out of doing this and I'm not I'm so so soon into my journey that I'm not even probably one of the most successful people in, in that respect you know Warren Buffett for quite a while was the richest man in the world he gave half his money his way and he's managed to make it back um, I think he's about the fourth or fifth richest man in the world again now <clears throat> um, so funnily enough it does work but when you look at someone like, excuse me, <coughs> Warren Buffett, <clears throat> he didn't. He started this game, you know, back in his late twenties, early thirties, um, and it's not until he kind of got to about late fifties, early sixties that his wealth exponentially take off, and that it was kind of a nice steady track, and then it shot off, you know. Um, and that's kind of what I think people need to reframe is that I suppose social media and things, it's that instant gratification we get from someone liking our post and commenting, which if, if you try and take that same mentality into the stock market, you're going to be in trouble. Yeah. Um, but equally, if you kind of, if, if, you, if you can employ a patient approach, you will do well. Um, and equally, if you're going, yeah, but it's still not for me, you know, I want to I want to be one of them, buy, 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 sell, sell, sell type of thing. There's a book by a guy called Andrew Azaz, A-Z-I-Z, -Z, not easy to pronounce. Um, I'm sure it is for him, but it's not for me. Um, but he, he wrote a book called um, How to Day Trade for a Living. And it's a very honest approach I think is you know and this he explains how difficult it is and the chances are you're probably going to lose money and you've got to be accepting you're going to lose money and that's the thing if you if you're still really hell-bent you want to get to the day trading side of it go and do it but try and educate yourself and whatever you do don't go and pay someone a couple of grand for a course I think that's the problem there's so many this like you see it everywhere on social there's so many people that are you know that there's courses there come you know come to this week you know weekend event of whatever and it's you know they're they're churning out people that 
think they know how to trade. Yeah. Actually, the defin like by definition, what they've gone in there to learn and what they've come in out having learned, I suspect are two different things. Yeah. I've never I've never been to one. I've not I've never even, you know, these people who you know, make a million pound. In, I'm exaggerating. But in, I don't know. They say, they say make 500 quid a day trading. <clears throat> and actually, 500 pound a day, you probably want, you probably want about 50 grand, or I would want about 50 grand, because that would mean making 1% a day. <clears throat> well, if you compound that 1% a day, you can trade in the market for 250 days a year. Your compounded interest rate is probably going to be about two and a half thousand percent. Yeah, it probably is. <clears throat> I'm just doing the mental arithmetic on it. Maybe not quite that high. Maybe about two thousand percent. But you, but your compounded effect, your annual compounded rate of return, will be phenomenal. Mm -hmm. You know, um, if you could just get one percent a day day trading, um, and that's why I. Uh, yeah, that's why I think but the day trading is a lot of work. It's a lot of effort. That's why I prefer to do what I call investing. And that is I spend my time reading about companies that start with something you understand that you like. You know, um, I, okay, I couldn't, I know obviously people can't see this, but, you know, as a, as a, as a bald man with a beard, I'm not big on hair care products. So I'm not I, I'm not in tune to what's what's going off in the hair care world, whether it be straighteners or shampoos or anything like that. You know, it's not my thing. So I'm not that's probably gonna be a really hard bar for me to get over. That's gonna be a really difficult level of entry for me. So I would give that a miss because it's not me. However, if you were someone who okay, take lockdown, COVID, you know, sh shenanigans out of it. If you were somebody who was getting your hair done once, twice a month, say, I don't know how often's often, you know, but you get my point. If you were doing this frequently and you understood <clears throat> whose products are really good, who's got a new product line on the way, because that's what the buzz is. That's what the people in the business are talking about. You know, I've heard so-and-so's got a set of hair straighteners coming out and they're a new... I don't know, super heated, super cool, tipped, whatever. Um, I really don't I'm know what loving, I'm talking about I'm here. I'm loving listening to you talk about hair care products. <laughs> but my point being is, I know nothing about them. I know absolutely zero about them. So I avoid that. I absolutely avoid that like the plague. But then there's other things. Um, I mean, we, that, we have... We had the conversation because I've I've bought some shares in um, in um, some in a couple of rec recruitment agency mm. brands because yeah. I work so much with the recruiters and I know that the trend is that recruiters tend to do well out of out, off the back of a recession. Yeah. So you know that's my investment there. Like it's you know it's already coming good and I can already mm -hmm. see that and I'm I'm kind of frustrated with myself for not taking more of a risk and putting more in initially but it is it's something I know something I know about something I know really really well yeah yeah exactly that 
and that and that's the point. And you say about this taking risks, but you know, I look at this and I reckon I've still got at least fifty years playing the stock market game. At least fifty years, maybe sixty. You know, have a good innings. Um, you know, might be like uh, Captain Sir Tom Moore gets to a decade, uh, not a decade, a century. Do you know what I mean? But. Um, but I realistically still think I've got another 50 years. So actually I look at something and think, oh, I've got loads of them. I've got loads of them businesses where I've researched them. I've worked out a price. And I'm, going, oh, I'm just not sure. I'm just not sure. Um, there was one I was looking at. It was a company who was turning, who found a way of making hydrogen cheap. And they floated but because it was an IPO and there wasn't a lot of information around it, but I did I did a bit of reading and <clears throat> I kind of understand what they're trying to do in 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 that sense. And also I can see renewable technologies and green technologies becoming a thing. Um and I didn't do it. And I think not take, you know, this is a share that performed really well in 2020 without COVID or anything in the way. And they went up about 100% or something like that, you know. And you look at them ones, and I think, you know what, though, but I suppose it's like Amazon. If you look to Amazon, look at Amazon in 2007, 2008, the stock market crashes, Amazon prices tumbles. You, but you've already seen Amazon by that point. They've been around for nearly a decade. You can see what they're doing. You can see they're a big player. You could have bought in. Yeah. Let's not go back as far as that. Let's go back as far as March last year. Amazon were up nearly $3,000 a share. They crashed to 1500 Last time I looked at Amazon, it's going back a few weeks, they were $3,200 a share. And so actually, at $1,500, it's a lot of money a share. Do you know what I mean? You know, if you're going to go and buy a hundred of them, you're going to have deep pockets as a retail investor. However, you've got over a hundred percent return because the business is solid. The business is good. And this is what I think people kind of need to get their head around is because the market's cyclical and you're going to have big crashes, you're going to have big falls. Um, and I know, we had a discussion probably August, September time. And I said, watch the end of October, end of October, the FTSE will test the five and a half thousand limit again. Lo and behold, what happens end of October, the FTSE. And that's not... Right. People are going to not know what that means. Yeah. So the FTSE, the FTSE is the Financial Times Stock Exchange. So the 100 biggest companies listed on the London Stock Exchange sit on the FTSE, the Financial Times Stock Exchange, 100, 100 being companies. Below that, you have the FTSE 250, which is the next 250 biggest companies. A mate of mine used it as a football analogy. The FTSE 100 is the premiership and the 250 is the championship. And that's the way to think of it. Um, but the, so the FTSE 100, I think at the time, was up around six, just over 6,000, I think, when I was making this prediction. And this isn't, I've got a crystal ball. This is just being realistic. There's a lot. There's a lot of excitement in people. So what's oh, right? So right, you've still not explained it clearly enough because you know this Sorry. is me being like you know, and this is not the first time you explained it to me. So when you said it's at it was at five thousand, as yeah, in it was just over six thousand. So so, so the whole was... the whole index. So the price of the whole index is okay. And if I get this right, 
Yes, it has to be. So if you owned one share of every company in the whole index, that's what the price of the index would add up to. Right, got you. If I've got this wrong, someone's going to send hate mail, but that's fine. You'll find me on Twitter and things, fill your boots. Um, And so basically that price, as the companies in the index go up and down in price, that price goes up and down. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay, so it was it was six six and a half thousand. I can't remember exactly what the price was, but I you I believe that you can kind of predict what the stock market's going to do in the, say eight to ten weeks as a maximum. You know, because we can say now with some some certainty um, there's a budget due beginning of March. The furlough scheme is even going to be ending or reviewed again at the end of March, early April. So we can kind of say with some certainty, we know these things are going to happen. And notwithstanding that the budget, there's probably got to be some changes in uh, policy there for taxation because of the amount of money we've spent for COVID. That needs to, you know, that's going to have an impact on the stock market. It's either going to go up or down depending what the news is. Um, and there's been some talk of corporation tax maybe going up. There's some talk of, you know, speculation. I haven't got my head into it fully yet, but I will in the next couple of weeks, certainly before the end of, uh, well, we're second week of February now, aren't we, pretty much? Um, but when you look back to August, what I could see on the horizon, I could see three distinct events all going to happen within about a two-week process, a two-week, um, not process, two-week um, period. Um, and one of them was the um, uh, the furlough scheme was due to end in October. That was initially what the Treasury said, the Chancellor said, you know, end of October, that's when we aim to end the furlough scheme. Obviously, as events transpired, that didn't happen. Um, then the first week of November, we had the US election. <laughs> yeah. How can people forget? <laughs> and then on, orig- on the original Brexit timeline, the 15th of November was the cutoff date to get a deal done to allow people time to implement any deal, both, both sides of the discussion. And obviously, that didn't come to effect. That didn't come to happen either. But as we got closer and closer to the last week of um, of October, all these um, all these things kind of converged. And just before we get to the announcement of the furlough schemes not going and we get to the US election, the FTSE fall falls and fell to about 5,600, 5,500 and change, I want to say. And a couple of people have said to me, how did you know that? How did you predict that? And I was like, this isn't, this isn't magic. This isn't witchcraft. This is just a bit of common sense. And just look at what's going on in the world around you. And then just ask yourself, does that create uncertainty? And if the answer is yes, it's probably going to have a negative effect on the stock market. Because stock markets don't like uncertainty. And if it's something that's going to create certainty, then the chance that it'll have a positive effect on the stock market and the price will go up because it's certainty. They know what's going to happen. Um, <clears throat> and I think that's where, so when I look at it now and I kind of go, okay, February, uh, March time, yeah, okay, I think 
there might be a bit of a fall again. I don't think it'll be as bad because the Brexit deal's now done and everyone's got their head around Brexit. But if there is a change in corporation tax, okay, maybe that that has an impact. Um, or maybe, you know, the furlough scheme, there needs to be an announcement made there, what's going to happen with that, that could have an impact. But there's other things as well, is the dollar's particularly weak at the moment against most currencies. You know, the pound's really gone up. And you'll notice this if you, pay, like I pay for things in dollars, I've noticed this because I'm paying for stuff in dollars and what was $100, you know, not a few weeks ago is now only costing me $80 yeah. because the pound, you know, is strengthened against the dollar. So that pays into it as well because that that affects import-export stuff and a lot of British companies are importing, exporting, so on and so forth. You know, there's a whole, there's a whole myriad of things. And so... What I'm looking for is I don't look to try and understand it. I'm just looking for something that's going to cause uncertainty. Because if I know if it can cause uncertainty, there's a potential the market drops. There's an opportunity for me to go buying while prices are cheap. And that's all I'm looking for. If I know a company's well run, but the whole stock market's gone down 10% because there's uncertainty, I'm a buyer every day of that week. But if, for example, it comes out I don't know, the CEO's put a million quid of expenses that year on Bolivian marching powder through the company accounts. I'm not sure many companies survive that kind of scandal yeah. and the stench might hang around for a while. And because of that, that might be a point where I go, actually, I was thinking of buying, but if they've been covering that up, what else is in there? What, what else don't I know? And that's, that's this fundamental doing the fundamental research is the big thing is getting to know the company. And when you see, you know, looking for the red flags. I, th I think that's it. I think that's probably the, like I say, the, the conversations we've had, it's like the realization hasn't been about the, the process of buying and selling and like the, the accounting and the tax and all, all that side of it. It's actually, you'd, you are buying part of a company. You need to do the same due diligence you would be doing if you were literally looking to buy that company. And I just had never considered looking at it that way previously. That that was that has definitely been the big lesson for me. Yeah, treat it like you're buying the whole thing. I'd like to buy all of Apple. Um, but sadly. <laughs> Next year, um, Rodney. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> cool. Yeah, go and uh, go and go and buy up big chunks of Apple. Um, awesome. Yeah, it's 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 an interesting. It is. It's a subject that you can really get lost in the rabbit hole of overcomplicating it and trying to find a a, a system. Does that make sense? But but the long and the short of it is with modern accountancy rules and laws, the accounts on are pretty transparent. And that takes the edge away from the from the respect of, you can go on the internet now, go to pretty much any company's website and get their annual report, read the annual report, have a look at the accounts. Um, and because you can do that, it can take away some of the edge that maybe 20 years ago people had. 
because the reports weren't as freely available and you had to write to the company to get a copy and it's a lot of hassle when you wait for them to come and you know pay for postage potentially because they come really thick documents and things but now you can go online and just download them everyone's got access to the same information everyone not everyone correction there's a lot of people who are writing computer code i'm an example of this to you know help do some of the heavy lifting of the equation so lift the numbers out of the financial reports and present them in such a way that you've worked out what a growth rate if if it even is growing if it's growing how much is it growing by and then you can make some sensible predictions on what you'll accept as your minimal growth for the next 10 years and from there you can work out a price you're willing to pay and that and it it sounds simple um and there was a there was a piece Charlie Munger did with the BBC back in 2009, I want to say. And he, he effectively said that um, he laid it out as in how how you find a business to invest in. He said there was four steps to the process. Um, and so one of them is, you know, you want to find a, a, a good, well-run business effectively. Um I can't remember the exact four steps he said in what order now. Effectively, you want to find a good, well-run business. You want to find a business that's run, um, that's profitable in what it does. What it does, it can't be easily um, copied. So it has uh, a moat, as he referred to it. So therefore they, you know, yeah, they they're in a business on their own <laughs> they have a good quality product they're run by people with integrity and talent but actually if it's a good business it could be run by an idiot and if you own any business long enough every now and again you might get an idiot in there um, <coughs> excuse me and then finally you just buy it for a price that makes sense it doesn't matter how good a business it is, it's not worth an infinite price. It's it's worth a set amount. And it's really it's a really simple concept, but really hard to put together. Yeah. Because there's not many companies out there well run that have a moat that you know are gonna be profitable, continue to be profitable. Um and the hardest one I always find is that price, you know. Because I look at Amazon at $3,200 and there's no way I'm buying. It's way overpriced. But in 10 years' time, I might be proved an idiot because actually Amazon stocks at $32,000. And I'm the idiot for sitting here now in, you know, on the record in 21 saying, well, $3,200, way overpriced. Maybe. But I'm not prepared to take that risk. And if I had the money and Amazon dropped to 1500 again on a whole market crash, maybe a buy. Apple, Tesla, Tesla could talk about this for hours. People, okay, a lot of the media over the GameStop stuff, where this all started, a lot of the media have complained that people are not buying on fundamentals. I think there's a strong argument for Tesla 
people aren't buying on fundamentals, they're buying on potential. I agree. Potentially, Tesla's probably going to change the world. And it probably already has done. We just haven't seen the impact of it yet. And when I say has done, it's because more and more mainstream manufacturers now are manufacturing cars. There's more and more Chinese startup car manufacturers coming to market. So probably Tesla has already changed the world. We just haven't seen the impact yet. And I don't think Tesla has fully fulfilled its potential. But people, it's priced as if it has fulfilled its potential. And that's what I think is a little bit dangerous. On the other side of the coin, look at Apple. And Apple, look at, you know, how many customers as we're doing this. Now I'm kind of looking around going, I've got one, two, three, four Apple products set in my ears. Um, you know, sign me up, Tim. I'm with you. Um, <laughs> but joking aside, Apple, you know, they've, they've, they've got a re- un- unbelievable revenue schemes, st- sorry, streams from things like subscription service, from selling the products. Because of how they design the products, they keep you in their ecosystem. Mm. And also they design it so when you get when the new iPhone comes out every year, the old iPhone isn't obsolete. It's not going to be obsolete for a few years. But they proposition, you know, the new iPhone. It's that it's it's like the iPod, a thousand songs in your pocket. Didn't talk about how many gigabytes of storage it had and the speed of the hard drive or anything. It told you there's a thousand songs in your pocket, and people went, I want a thousand songs in my pocket. It's like 20 years worth of music. I don't care, I want a thousand songs in my pocket. And that's what Apple are good at. And they got you into the ecosystem. And now you're in the ecosystem, that's their moat. It's really hard to get out of it. And because you're in their moat, now their app stores and everything, that's that's revenue. And so actually, if you were looking, um, if you were looking to buy shares in Apple, you would say, well, actually, okay, big company, big investment companies get really nervous and worried about they haven't hit the quota for iPhones for the year. But actually, they've still got that one billion deep. I think I might be wrong on this. One billion deep user base worldwide, who are still, you know, using their Macs, still using their iPhones, their iPads, into the app stores, buying stuff, getting Apple Music, getting you know news, the the subscription service now, iCloud, etc. That's all continuous revenue for Apple. And so when you look at Apple, Apple make a phenomenal amount of cash every year and they spend a phenomenal amount of cash on designing new products. But if you look at them as a business and going, yeah, okay, I think they're a little bit overpriced. I do, but now they've done their stock split, they've made the price of the shares cheaper. If you get another event where the stock market falls 10, 15, 20%, Apple all of a sudden might make sense. Yeah. And that's, that's, you know, but you've got to do your research. You know, that stuff off Apple for me is because, as you know me by now, Christine, I'm a little bit like Rayman and I read a lot and my mind goes off into different places and I look at loads of different things and I retain knowledge. So I know that off the top of my head about Apple, but I'm sure if I sat and properly did some real reading on Apple, then I might decide that the current price is a good price. I don't know. Mm. So I'm going to draw things to a close. We've covered, we've, we talked about loads more than I thought we would. 
which mm. is great. Um, you are the man when it comes to looking long-term at this stuff and doing your research and being able to talk about the, like the, you know, the, the little bits that pop up that people don't understand. So mm. where should we direct people to in order to consume your content and reach out to you and that kind of stuff? Yeah. So, um, well, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, through the Market Fluent page. Um, you know, without putting a downer note on this, we're you know we're closed. We're closed at the moment for taking on new members at Market Fluent, and that is just because we're doing a complete software overhaul at the moment. Um, so we're not onboarding anybody, but we're still active. Our social media page is still active, so people want to keep an eye on them. Um, I put stuff out on Medium, um, normally link it on the Market Fluent Facebook page and Twitter page and things, but I put blogs and observations out on Medium uh, as and when I get a chance. Um, so, yeah, people can look for me there. I want to say my name is something like the underscore Ian underscore Cairns. Um, it is the Ian Cairns on Medium. Yeah, the Ian Cairns, because someone had taken Ian Cairns and then I don't think they're really using it. So, um, <laughs> so yeah, that's uh, that's the one on Medium. And then it's say Market Fluent Pages, Facebook, Twitter. Market Fluent also have a Reddit account. I actually use Reddit quite a lot. I'm not part of Wall Street Bets. Uh, I have been aware of Wall Street Bets for a while, but I will caveat this. I'm not part of that <clears throat> community. Uh, however, I, I, I have dipped in and out of there to see what people are discussing. Maybe with 8 million people in there, it might not be as useful anymore. I don't know. We'll see how it ends up. But yeah, the normal social platforms look for market fluent and drop us a message, like, follow, share, press the subscribe button. What else am I supposed to say on these kind of things? And hit the notification bell. That's it, the notification <laughs> bell. Ding, ding. <laughs> I'm rubbish at this stuff. <laughs> oh, so, yeah, I am I am trying to kick your ass in the nicest possible way on it. But, yeah. Um, but yeah. But I think the key thing is if people have got questions related to investing, you're a great person to ask because you will produce that piece. And whether it's a blog or whatever, you will produce something that actually answers the question yeah I, I yeah i'm trying to um time time dependent but yeah definitely i've had a few questions over the gamestop stuff over short selling um yeah there's a couple of bits and pieces that i'm working on at the moment that hopefully will be out in the next week or so um i'm gonna i'm making a concerted effort to be more regular putting this stuff out but definitely if you've got questions you want answering you know fire it in there and I will get around to them at some point um, it probably won't be those one-on-one -on -one replies though and I will caveat this because people then seem to think as a one-on-one -on -one reply is me offering them some kind of financial advice and that is not what I'm here to do <laughs> yeah Ian is not a financial advisor no no <laughs> yeah, he's a uh, yeah he he might be my um, stocks and shares guru, but he's not a financial advisor. No, no. <laughs> awesome. No.
thanks for your time, Ian. I really, really appreciate it. And, no worries. Um, I know you don't normally do podcasts. So I feel very privileged. Thank you. No, I don't do many of these kind of things. Awesome. Thank you. All right. Cheers, Christina. Bye.